we're going through six months worth of prepping, basically prepping you to be a minister, okay? You're not just a pew sinner or warm in a chair, okay? Your job is to minister to your classmates, to minister to your neighbors, to minister to all of those around you. What would happen to our churches if people who attend a service stop seeing themselves as, I just a Christian, so I go to church, and this is the thing I do, versus seeing themselves as a minister, right? And so for six months, it, it's going to be deep for six months, okay? This isn't, we're not playing games. I'm prepping you to be able to go out and minister to other people, and it all starts with your identity. And so for three weeks, we've been, this is the third week, we are hitting and talking about our identity as ministers and what that looks like in the Bible from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And so the first week, we talked about that you are a priest. There is something in the Bible called the priesthood of all believers. You are a priest, which means you are a bridge builder. You build a bridge between heaven and a fallen world. And so that people come to you and they see heaven in you and you are enacting the, the virtues of heaven and putting them into a fallen world that more times than not is not going to like them. Right? You're... The world values comfort, speed, quickness, right? And we come in and we value, that's awesome. We value patience. We value trust. We value mercy and grace. The world values revenge and grudges. If you look, if you were to go back in time and look at BC before Christ and look at societies and cultures Prior to Christ, the vast majority of cultures and societies from the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire, etc., this concept of forgiveness is nearly non-existent until Christianity shows on the scene. If, and yet none of us in this room have ever lived in a world that's not influenced by Christianity. And so when you see an unsaved person saying, well, I just got to forgive them, understand that's a Christian influence they don't even realize. Because prior to Christianity, the concept of forgiveness was very, very foreign. It only shows up minutely in some civilizations. And yet for the past 2,000 years, we've grown in it. The idea of grace, minute throughout human history until you get to Christianity. And so our job is to inject these, these values of Christ Christianity and the values of heaven into a fallen world. And that's ministering to people. We take these things for granted like it's just always been this way. It hasn't. Jesus dying on the cross started a revolution that we are the recipients of, that we are a part of. But it's hard to think about a world in which Christianity doesn't have some influence. But as Christianity, and the Bible tells us this, as Christianity begins to lose its influence, you're going to see the world revert back to pre-Christian, a pre-Christian world where unforgiveness, grace, mercy, etc. aren't valued. That revenge and justice for the sake of justice. In fact, Jesus even said the, world's, the world leaders who don't know Christ lead out of fear and lord it over people. 
It's natural for those who are not saved that when they lead, they lead out of fear. You better do this or else. And we're seeing it run rampant in the world today. We're seeing it run rampant out of our own government. Do this or else, right? It's fear-based. Jesus said that people that follow in in my kingdom will be grace-based and love-based and respectful-based. It's a different kingdom. And so when we say that we are not from this world, that our citizen doesn't exist here, but yet we are citizens of heaven, living, if you will, in some sense, behind enemy lines, it's true. And so today, we're going to, we talked about, again, three weeks ago, you're a priest. Last week, we talked about you are an image bearer, but that image has fallen because of sin, and the sin is not eating the fruit, the sin is idolizing and putting above God anything that God says, hey, hey, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. And you go, yeah, but I really want, right? And we act like that kid in the candy store with God sometimes. But I really want Does anybody ever do that to God, or am I the only one? Yeah. yeah. And God's like, no, it's not for your good. It's not healthy for you. But God, he's like, I'm working all things out for your good. you got to trust me. It doesn't feel good right now, right? The the writer, the writer says in the New Testament, he says, listen, what parent, when they're punishing their kid, it does not feel good for the kid at the moment. But in the long run, the punishment is for their benefit in the long run. God punishes us, not, not with death and despair, but with a nice correction to say, hey, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. We're not, we're not doing that. We're not, we're not going that way, Right? And so we, we found last week that our job is to bear the image of Christ in the world so that they can see that heaven loves them and that one day heaven and earth will unite and become one. Today we're going to talk about you are a temple. You are a priest. You are to bear the image of God. Part of your identity is also that you are a temple. Now there's this joke that I saw on social media. Josh, you wouldn't have saw this because it's not on social media. But there's this joke on social media that I have the body of a god, it's just Buddha. Anybody ever read that? I have the body of a god, it's just Buddha. All right, well, Buddha's not a god, but you get the idea. And the Bible says that our bodies are a temple. Okay, so to, to get our minds around this concept, we have to go all the way back to when the temple was first introduced. To understand that because then you'll begin to understand what your identity is as a temple so when the temple is first really introduced in Exodus chapter 33 Moses is in charge and Moses it wasn't called the temple uh, then necessarily it was called the tabernacle of Moses but it was set up the same as the actual physical temple that King Solomon would build later and it says Uh, In Exodus 33, it's also called the Tent of Meeting because it was a tent, and it housed the Ark of the Covenant. And as the Israelites moved, they would pack up the tent, and they would move. And if there's one thing the river understands, it's packing up the tent and moving. Listen, we're just following in the steps of Moses and the Israelites. I think we're a pretty good company, right? We just pack up the tent. This ain't the place. We just go on down because the river just flows like that. Right? Y'all are laughing really hard right now. 
But that was the church with the Israelites as they wandered. They would go so far and they would stop. God says, I want to meet. And they would, they would literally set up the tent. And, the, and then they had tent walls that were made out of tent material. And they would set it up. And then they would put the ark into the Holy of Holies. And they would stay there for a while. And they would worship God. <laughs> Boy, this is like looking in the mirror, isn't it, as a church? And they would worship and worship and worship. And God said, now this isn't the promised land yet. Pack up your tent, grab the ark of the, get the priest, pick up the ark of the covenant, and we're moving on. And that was the early temple. And then when David becomes king, David has a heart after God. And, God's, and David tells God in a prayer, he says, God, you need to have a permanent place. Like, we have houses. <laughs> amen. My wife just said amen. We have houses. But you don't, you don't have a house. God, I want to build for you. David says, I want to build for you a permanent place for you. And God then speaks back to David, and he says, yes, you're right. I would like to have a permanent place, and I want it to be in Jerusalem. This is why it was so huge a few years ago when the former president worked with Israel's prime minister and made Jerusalem the capital of Israel. This is huge prophetically, massively huge, because the Bible says that in the end times before Christ comes back, Jerusalem will be the capital of Israel. The Bible prophesied this. Jerusalem would be its capital, and the temple would be rebuilt. And as you were here last week, I shared with you last week that Israel has all of the furniture ready to go to put in the temple. All they need now is the land. And there's some issue there because some of that land is owned by Islam. So Jews and Islam, you know, they're not like really good bedfellows. But that's actually being worked out as we sit here today. Um, so all of that is ready for the third temple. And the Bible says the third temple is the final temple. So just think about how close we are now. Just in the past few years, Jerusalem has become the capital of Israel, which was prophesied about in Scripture that had to exist, that had to happen. Right? So this is how close we are. So David says, God, I want to build for you a permanent place. And God says, David... I want a permanent place, put it in Jerusalem. And now, now, God looks at David and says, David, you're a guy after my own heart, but you can't build my house because you were a man of war and you shed too much blood. My house will be a place of peace. But David, go ahead and go get all the gold and the silver and the copper, get all of the acacia, get all the wood, Get everything that's needed, all the stones, the rubies, the diamonds, and the gems to build my temple and get it ready because your son Solomon is a man of peace and he will build my temple in Jerusalem. And so on David's deathbed, David is, some of his final words to his son Solomon is, hey, build the temple. I've prepped it all. I've got all of the materials ready to go. I've got everything ready to, to run with. Build the temple. And the Bible tells us that Solomon, though he definitely had his faults, was a man of peace. And there was no war. David established the kingdom through war. Solomon comes in and sets up years and years and years of peace with no war. Israel fought no wars under Solomon. And he builds this temple. And then he goes to the dedication service. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, it tells us this. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. 
Is there a way to remove the river logo? There it is. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, when you, when you, when you think about this, here's the temple. They build it. They have a church service in the temple. And the glory of God comes in so thick that nobody can see. The cloud fills this building, this massive building. And the glory of God fills it. And they can't see to perform their duties, their rituals. They can't see to do it. God's presence comes and fills the temple and says, yes, this is my house. This is where I belong. And God expresses his presence through smoke and fire. Through fire and smoke, God says, I'm here. I have arrived. Right? Just like, just like Elijah on Mount Carmel. Right? When he sacrifices makes the sacrifice, and God comes down in a pillar of fire and sucks up the altar and everything around it with fire and smoke. You know where else we saw a pillar of fire? Led the Israelites through the desert, right? A pillar of fire by night and a what by day? A smoke, a cloud of smoke by day. Fire and smoke. When God comes in and in his presence, you can't see. It's hot. It's like God is here. And you know God is here. And so you see this progression of the temple. You see it from, from a tent in the wilderness to a capital city and a permanent building. And the first temple lasted from 957 B.C. to 586 B.C. This, then it was destroyed. The second temple was built in 538 B.C. and lasted until 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed it. And again, as I said, the Bible says it's going to be built a third time, and that third temple will last forever. And so you see this progression of the temple until something happens after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus when he ascends to heaven. He says, go wait in a room. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Now, where had the Holy Spirit dwelt before? The Holy Spirit had dwelt before in the Holy of Holies. You couldn't go in, right? So last week I talked a little bit, I think it was last week or the week before, I talked about the priest that would go into the Holy of Holies and he had bells on the bottom of his clothes. So as long as you heard the bells, you knew he was alive. But if he had sin in him, he would be struck dead instantly in the presence of God because sin cannot stand in the presence of God. He would be, and so he always had a rope tied around his ankles so the priest on the outside of the Holy Holies, if he heard the bell stop dinging, just drug his body out. Right? No pressure for that priest. And so he would go in and he would, he would perform his duties. But when, do, do you remember something that happened in the temple when Jesus died? What was torn? The veil of the Holy of Holies where the Holy Spirit dwelt. So when Jesus dies, this veil, this, this curtain that is nearly three stories tall and three feet thick, rips from top to bottom. Okay, look, that doesn't, you, no human does that. In fact, I don't even know that an earthquake would rip, would, would tear a curtain that is three feet thick and three stories tall. An earthquake isn't going to do that, right? This is a miraculous act of God to say no more. Now the Holy Spirit is coming out of the Holy of Holies and the Holy Spirit's coming out, and you can go in. 
Now there is a mutual access. And so Jesus says, now wait in the upper room until Acts chapter 2. Well, I will pour out this Holy Spirit. I will now pour him out into you. This is a, this is a concept, like, totally, it's like explaining, explaining physics to a first grader. It's incomprehensible to the Jewish people and to his followers. He's like, wait a minute, what? Because if you read in the entire Old Testament, the Holy Spirit always came on people, but never in them. Always. It says it came on King Saul, it came on King David, it came on Moses, it, the Spirit came on Abraham, and then it left. It'd come on and then leave, come on and then leave. And then Jesus says, we're done with that. You are a temple, and the Holy Spirit is now going to live inside of you and begin to restructure your heart and restructure who you are. So in Acts chapter 2, we get this. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that had separated and come to rest on each man. What do you see? You see fire? You see any smoke? There's no smoke in this. What happened? What happened? There was fire and wind, but for the first time, the smoke is not here. And I, I want to read this because I, wanna, I want you to get this. I want you to get it good. Get it good. Is that? I don't know. Anyway. In the New Testament, in this passage, there is fire and no smoke. Symbolizing that what was once a mystery is no longer a mystery. Remember when the smoke appeared in the temple, they couldn't see. They couldn't see. But now in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes down in fire and wind instead of smoke. Saying the mystery is over. The church age is here. Because they couldn't fully see. It was symbolic. They couldn't fully see in the Old Testament what was coming. Because if you've ever been around smoke, you know you can't fully see everything. You can see shapes and shadows, but you can't see fully what's ahead of you. But now Jesus, in Acts chapter 2, sends the fire, just like the dedication of the temple. The fire comes, but the wind blows out the smoke and says, there's no more shapes and shadows. You can see fully what I'm about to do. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friend. There's a difference between a servant and a friend. I just serve God. I'm a servant. A servant doesn't know what's going on. A friend does. Right? A friend does. Jesus says, I call you friend. There's no more mystery. God works in mysterious ways. Right? How many, how many of you said that? Have heard that? How many of you have said it? Yeah, I'm about ready to bust your chops. Look at your friend and say, that's not true. That's not true. Listen. God is your friend. Friends let friends know what's up. If God's working in mysterious ways, it's only because you've not spent enough time to get to know him. Can we say that again? All right. I got to think how I said it. If God is working in mysterious ways, it's only because you've not taken the time to get to know him. There's no mystery. God is not. When the Bible talks about mysteries, you know what the word mysteries means in the New Testament? It means you have to study to get it. It's only a mystery because you're not spending the time to study it. The word mystery doesn't mean like magical, mystical, like we think in the Western culture. In biblical times, the word mystery meant you have to apply yourself and study it. 
The problem is we live such a fast-paced life. I want to do my five-minute devotional, say my prayers on the way to work, and I don't want to study. And so God seems like a mystery. But you start spending time with him as a friend, the mystery goes. Like, ah, oh, there's God right there. He's moving right there. Because you see it, because you read it, and you're like, oh, I see the pattern. God's moving. So next time you start to say, well, he works in mysterious ways, catch yourself. Right? You got to catch yourself like a pastor said. That's not true. Like, yes, there are things about God we cannot comprehend. Why? Because he's infinite and we're finite. Your brain can only, only hold so much. His brain holds everything. I don't even know if he has a brain. I don't know how that works. <laughs> but my point is this. When you know God, you know how he works. You know your friends. You know what ticks your friends off, right? You know what makes your friend happy. It's the same way with God. It's the same concept. And so the wind comes, removes the smoke, because now what was once a type and shadow in the Old Testament is now visible here, and the fire of the Holy Spirit is here. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. Ouch. There's this like really popular Frank Sinatra song, and then it was sang by, I think, like Michael Buble. Michael Buble. Michael Bubbly. Anyway. There's this song called, I Did It My Way. It is like the most arrogant song you could ever sing. Oh, it feels good to sing it because it's me. But once again, you're finite. He's infinite. And if you do it your way, you can't see everything. And you're going to get hit by, I didn't see that coming. Of course you didn't. Right? You are now a temple. Not only are you a priest, like we talked about two weeks ago, but you are also the temple. You are two in one. Spiritually and physically, you are a package deal. You are both priest and the house of God. You are a package deal, spiritually and physically. God says, I want to come live with you and in you. Think about that. All right, if you're sitting next to your spouse, say, honey, I'm the package deal. And if you're not sitting next to your spouse, look at them and say, you're a package deal. I don't know, maybe if you're single, you might find your spouse, right? You are a package deal, both spiritually and physically. You are the priest that does the work, but you are the temple in which you also house the Spirit of God. You do the work of God, but you house the Spirit of God. You are now two in one. Now, yes, we're fallen, but we still bear the image of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Ephesians 3, 16 through 17. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. He wants the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. Everywhere you go, the Spirit's with you. You want proof of this? Go to a certain store. Go to self-checkout. And I, I, I'm joking, right? And let the self-checkout scanner, like, suddenly hit some sort of, like, malfunction. 
and you want to be like, and you keep scanning, and you keep scanning, and you keep scanning, and it doesn't work, but then inside of you is a voice saying, okay, now just calm down. Don't do this, right? And then, like, you want to call the manager and be like, where's my paycheck for checking myself out? You should be giving me money to check myself out, right? And you want to say all sorts of things, but inside of you is this spirit being that says, don't say that. Stop that. Do this instead, right? Because you know if you had your way, you'd give somebody a piece of your mind. We (laughs) don't quit. You all are sitting here like all quiet on this one. You know, don't sit there like you got it together. He says the Holy Spirit wants to dwell in you. The word dwell is the Greek word katoikio. Katoikio, it's two words. The first word is kata, K-A-T-A, kata, K-A-T-A. And it means to come down and then dwell. It means to come down and then fill. So picture, if you will, a funnel like, you know, you take your faucet, right? Turn your kitchen faucet on, the water comes down, and then you stick a glass under it. It hits the bottom of the glass, and then it begins to spread out. This is kata. Come down, boom, and out. They are having a rip-roaring time. (laughs) Come down and out, right? That's kata. And then some of us in this room will really like this second Greek word, ikeo. I-K-E-O. Does it remotely sound familiar? Cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. Right? Ikeo. Ikeo means to dwell or to live permanently. And if you ever go into Ikea, you will be there permanently because there is no way out. They have nailed this Greek word to a T, right? So anyway, Ikeo, I-K-E-O. And it does literally mean to live or to dwell permanently. And so when, when, when the writer puts these two words together, it's a picture of something coming down from above, hitting and then beginning to fill so that it can live there permanently. And he describes the Holy Spirit coming into you and then hitting and then wanting to begin to live there permanently and to live there for a very long time. It means to move in and to fill with influence, to to fill up and to begin to influence so that when you say, Holy Spirit, come and fill me up, the spiritual faucet comes on and he goes, okay, I'm here to dwell and I'm here to live permanently. Let me give you an example. My parents, about 12, 13 years ago, my dad was transferred to Louisville, Kentucky. So he went down to the Ford assembly plant in Louisville, Kentucky, and they lived there for about a decade, for about 10 years. And we go down and visit. And dad got promoted while he was down there and so on. And we would go to their apartment and I'd say, well, you know, why don't you, why don't you find a house? And they're like, because we're not gonna live here permanently. We don't plan on living it. We're living in Louisville just long enough until your dad can, you know, dad can retire, and then we're going to move back up here where all the family is. I said, okay, that's fine. So you like going to hang anything on the walls of your apartment? Nope, because every hole we have to pay ten dollars for them to patch it. So nothing goes on the walls. We're only here temporarily. You want new furniture? Nope. We'll buy new furniture when we move in someplace permanently. Like. And their couch was horrible. Like, horrible. The bed? Horrible. Like, 
And they're like, nope, we're just here temporarily. We're not staying here. We're not hanging anything on the walls. We're using our old raggy, nasty furniture. We're not paying, we're not going to pay this apartment complex any more than, you know, our rent. And I'm like, well, I know where I got it from. And so they were there temporarily. Now, since they have moved back up here, and you go into their place, there's stuff on the walls. I mean, they got here, and you would have thought, like, suddenly they become sheiks. And, like, there's brand new furniture, and there's rugs everywhere. And they're, like, they're making up for a decade of lost decoration. And it's, like, everything is decorated. And it's, like, well, we're just compensating for a decade of not decorating anything because we weren't paying them any more money than we had to. I was, like, oh, my gosh. And, but now their house is decorated the way they want, with all new furniture the way they want, and everything. Because they went a decade, because they didn't live there permanently. They were there temporarily. And when you allow the Holy Spirit to come in permanently, he begins to decorate and do with your life what he wants. The problem is this. We invite the Holy Spirit to come in and live, but don't go in that room and don't touch that. Holy Spirit, come in and don't put that on the wall. Don't touch that part of my life. Don't, I can't give you that. So what happens? Oh, you, you're saved. You're going to go to heaven. But the Holy Spirit's not going to decorate your life like he wants to. He's not going to be able to live there fully. So what I mention, when I talk about being filled with the Spirit, it's one thing to be saved. It's another thing to be filled with the Spirit. And the Bible makes a delineation very clear throughout from Acts all the way through. You can be saved and go do your own thing and get to heaven. And the Bible says you'll get to heaven and smell like smoke as if you just passed through a fire. Listen, I've smelled smoke. I don't want to spend eternity smelling like smoke. You're like, oh, well, here comes so-and-so. They apparently never did anything in their life. Well, how do you know? Because it smells. I can smell them coming. I don't know if that's really going to happen in heaven, but that's what the Bible says, that they passed through the fire of judgment just barely because they accepted Christ, but they didn't allow the Holy Spirit to do anything else in their life. And there's going to be a lot, a lot of people in heaven like that. But then the Bible says that there will be those in heaven that allow themselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that allowed the Holy Spirit to work through them, and they will be rewarded. They will be rewarded in the Bible to the best of our human language says they will be rewarded with gold, gems, precious stones, etc., and they will rule and reign in heaven. Now think about that. How do you want to spend eternity, smelling like smoke or ruling and reigning? That wasn't a rhetorical question. I'm hoping everybody wants to rule and reign. And so when the Holy Spirit then nudges you to say something to somebody, or the Holy Spirit moves on you to to donate or be generous, or when the Holy Spirit moves on you, allow yourself to be led by the Holy Spirit and do it. Why? Because as Revelation says, nobody wants to smell like smoke in heaven. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that's a permanent condition. That's just the way John describes it in Revelation. So it's important that we allow ourselves to be filled because to dwell in your heart, the word heart is cardius, K-A-R- D-I-S, cardia. It's where we get cardiac. Anything cardiac with the heart comes from this Greek word, cardi, cardius. And in the Greek, it means your character and your moral ability for decision-making. Your moral ability for decision-making. 
And he says he wants to fill that up. What does that look like? Let me give you three examples in the Bible. First one is Peter in Matthew chapter 26, 69 through 75. In Matthew chapter 26, 69 through 75, you have Peter denying that he even knows Jesus. And in the Greek, he literally swears at this nine-year-old girl. He literally says, and I won't say it, right, in church or anywhere else for that matter. But he says, blank you, I don't know him. Literally in the Greek. Now, we don't bring that into English. because. <gasps> but Peter swears at a nine-year-old girl going, I don't even know, I don't even know, what are you talking about? But then after Acts chapter 2, when he's filled with the Spirit, there is no other instance of Peter losing his cool, except for when he gets into an argument with Paul in Galatians. And if you read it, you find that Paul's the one that brought that on. Peter completely, everybody wants to say, well, Peter cussed in the Bible. Yeah, pre-filling of the Holy Spirit. But once he's filled with the Spirit, the swearing stops. Oh, snap. Preacher, why'd you do that? I don't know. It's what I do. All right, next example. Next example was Paul. Paul is a modern-day terrorist hunting down Christians and killing them or putting them in jail. And he has a certificate that says he can. And so he's literally stoning Christians and having them killed or he's putting them in jail. He experiences Christ, he gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he becomes one of the greatest thinkers in human history and becomes one of the, the greatest follower of Christ, as far as we know, in human history. He gets filled with the Spirit, the Spirit comes in and floods him, and then he changes his complete character. The third one, James, the brother of Jesus. In John chapter 7, verse 3, you can just look this up. I, this is one of my favorite kind of hidden stories in Scripture. In John chapter 7, verse 3, James is not a believer in his brother. And he comes up and he says, hey, if you're really the son of God, why don't you go out and do all these, why don't you go out and do all these miracles in public in the big city so everybody can see you? I mean, he's very snarky towards Jesus, his, his stepbrother. He doesn't even believe Jesus is the Messiah until Jesus' resurrection. And then he's like, oh, <laughs> he was right all along. And you never find James being snarky or sarcastic after that, ever. Even in writings outside of Scripture, you never find that in James' life. The sarcasm and the snarkiness goes. There's just three examples. Here's what we have to understand. You, you are the pinnacle of the creation God has chosen to inhabit. He didn't, choose, he didn't choose to inhabit some tree or some raccoon or some cool bald eagle. He chose to inhabit you. You. I'm going to put my power, the power that created the universe, I'm going to pour it into you. Do you want it? Do you believe it? Because if you don't believe it and don't want it, he's like, I'm not going to force it on you. I'm not going to force you to believe in me. But if you want to, you can. You are the pinnacle of the creation God has chosen to inhabit. So what does that mean? You are the temple. If you are the temple, it's no longer in a tent or in a building. But since Acts chapter 2, he has put the spirit into you in closing three things. Number one, what was the temple, okay? What was the role of the temple? Number one, it brought people into contact with God and each other. The temple brought people into contact with God, and as they came together, it brought them into contact with each other. 
as a minister of the gospel, a minister of the gospel brings people together to experience community. You, as a minister, bring people together for the sake of the gospel so they can experience the community of the gospel. And community means that we live together, we work together, we help each other out. Hey, I need a ceiling fan. I need help hanging a ceiling fan. Yeah, I'll be right over. That's what we do. Hey, I need help setting up for my kid's one-year birthday party. All right, I'll be right over. It's what we do. It's how we work. The second thing that the temple did in its culture and in its society, the temple, they would go to the temple and it would reveal God's plan. A minister of the gospel reveals God's plan to others. You should be revealing God's plan. He calls you friend, which means you don't get to say, oh, he just works in mysterious ways, right? No, no. The third thing the temple does is that it revealed God's power. A minister of the gospel reveals God's power in their lives. If you're a minister in the temple, you reveal the power of God in your life. You say, well, how do, how do I do that? You do that with your testimony, by sharing what God has done in your life, by sharing the, the cool things that God has done, right? That's how we share. You, you find sharing your testimony, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Romans 10, 17. Revelation 12, 11, pretty popular, right? They overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, right? Sharing what God's done in your life. Acts chapter one, verse eight, you share your testimony. You talk about it. Well, let me share with you what God did. I just, let me share with you what God did, right? Joseph likes got an amazing testimony. This guy had cancer, lung cancer. He shouldn't be sitting in that chair. But we gathered and we prayed and anointed him. The doctor comes back in and goes, I can't explain it, but your lung lesion and cancer is gone. I don't know where it went. Testimony. Yeah, I, look, if that doesn't make you stand up, check your pulse if you're not standing up clapping for that. But seriously, but you're like, well, my testimony is not that drastic. Yes, you were once dead in your sins and you've been brought to life. That's a greater miracle than healing lung cancer. It really is. Why? Because Jesus had to go to the cross, go into hell and kick Satan's butt and say, give me the keys that you took from Adam and Eve. I'm taking them back so that I can merge heaven and earth one day and create a people that will live on earth and share my testimony and be the ministers to a fallen world that the world needs. That is a much greater miracle than any kind of healing. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. So as we stand up and we're going to close and we're going to sing out, we ought to be celebrating. Yes, that means come on up. That we should be celebrating what God has done as you are a package deal of both a priest and the temple as a minister of God, bearing the image of Jesus into a fallen, jacked-up world. That's your job, whether it's on the field in sports, whether it's underneath the kitchen sink plumbing somebody's plumbing. Is that how you say that? I don't know. Working, their, working on their engines. Your job is to be the image of Jesus. And yes, it's going to be a fight because a fallen world doesn't like another kingdom coming in and taking over. It's going to be a fight. And that's okay.
Because Jesus already won the fight. Amen? Amen. Amen.